Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 9th, 2016, and my guest is Jonathan Skinner, the James O. Friedman Presidential Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College. He's written extensively on health care, which is our topic for today. John, welcome to EconTalk. I'm delighted to be here. So let's start with the paradox of healthcare technology. In most, maybe all areas, technology lowers costs, improves quality, but in healthcare, it seems to raise costs with uncertain effects on quality. What do we know about that phenomenon? That is a great question. Uh, there is uh, a clear uh, difference in, I think, a lot of healthcare technology when, for example, uh, health information technology came in, that is always electronic record keeping to keep track of whether the physician has actually done the right thing f- uh, for their patient and asked them all the right questions. Um, great potential for improving healthcare outcomes, but the problem is that it takes time for the doctor to actually fill out all of these forms and click on different boxes. Um, and so that's actually reduced the amount of time that the doctor has to spend uh, talking to the patient. Some institutions have actually adjusted to that by hiring scribes to follow the doctors <laughs> around. And so what you end up with is a new technology that costs a lot of money uh, that actually leads to a boost in uh, healthcare jobs um, and with uncertain effects on outcomes. So that's kind of, that's a little bit of a, of a quick paradigm of, 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 of healthcare technology. Well, my, my uh, general practitioner sits with a laptop, not a laptop, it looks like a magic iPad. I don't know if it's a customized um, tablet or whether it's just a off-the-shelf iPad with some software running. But he sits there dutifully acting like a scribe, uh, noting my responses, uh, checking off boxes, et cetera. It's pretty, it's pretty smooth. Um, I want to go deeper into this question of technology, but in this particular case, there was a lot of enthusiasm for electronic record keeping. What is the expected return on healthcare outcomes if that goes smoothly? Of course, there are mistakes. <laughs> you know, you can misenter things. Uh, things can be forgotten to be entered. But assuming that, that, that we really do keep good electronic records, what is the promise of that technology in particular for outcomes? There is actually a, a tremendous uh, potential for, ver- for very good outcomes. In fact, it's hard to imagine in 20 years uh, a healthcare system that wouldn't be highly dependent on their, on their healthcare technology, uh, the record keeping. Um, if somebody gets sick and they, and they end up uh, with seeing a different doctor, there's really no substitute for that other physician being able to just uh, tap on their iPad and and find out all the records. It's also invaluable for monitoring what physicians do. That is, are they giving 
these necessary, say, tests for diabetic patients? Are they doing the hemoglobin A1C test, which kind of checks to make sure that their, that their blood sugar is under control? So I think the problem in practice, as, it usually, as these things usually end up being, is the implementation of, of something that's sort of new and difficult to use. I think the technology is going to get better, but, it's, but just like um, you know, uh, uh, flying airplanes, uh, that I think in the future that, that the electronic part of healthcare is going to be indispensable. Yeah, I mean, in theory, you could use smart technology, smart machines to do the monitoring that you talked about to you know, make sure that certain procedures were done. Of course, you can also check the box and not do the procedure. Uh, that's a different kind of misentering. Uh, you can you can lie or be negligent or you can decide, oh, I didn't think that was important and just check the box anyway. And we've had episodes on Econ Talk where those kind of issues arise. But in general, you'd think that that kind of collection of data would be very helpful. And as you say, I mean, right now I had, I had a shoulder issue. I went and got an MRI. My doctor never saw the MRI. He got the summary of the... Um, the findings by the MRI person in writing about what the nature of the problem was. But I found that kind of remarkable that that wasn't just uploaded into the cloud. And then the other part that's remarkable about it, and we'll get into this later as well, is who owns that? You know, that, that should, arguably that should be my record. And I eagerly share that with my doctor. Instead, it gets written onto a disc that I happen to have forgotten that day. And he's, oh, don't worry about it. I'll just look at the and I just, it's just weird that in 2016, we're still using was essentially a paper or, or a physical-based system. Yes, it is remarkable. It's probably one of the few industries that still use fax machines to, <laughs> to send things around, uh, records, for example. And, and, and I think that, that, that the, um, the idea of, of putting one's data up into the cloud where, where the individual patient can access it, I think, is also something that's coming along very rapidly. Um, but but the, 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 it, the, the key thing also that I see for, for uh, computers uh, is, is that, you know, there are probably 30,000 randomized trials that are done every year, and no human being can keep track of all of this new knowledge. And so I think computers are good at finding patterns, and they're good at sort of noticing things in people's uh, records that can at least prompt or, or, or you know, buzz the, computer, the, 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 the physician to say, you know, the, the patterns that we see for this patient are consistent with such and such a disease. Now, it may be so uncommon a disease that, uh, that, you know, the physician may have run into it in medical school, you know, 20 years ago, but hasn't, has never seen such a pattern before. But even though it is fairly uncommon, it does happen. And so that's, again, I think the promise of, of electronic prompts or, or, or nudges uh, that can really uh, sort of help the physician do a better job of diagnosis. The other issue, though, is, and this, I, you know, electronic health records are just one kind of technology is that it's part of the process. The, the real issue seems to me, and you, you've written about this, is the use of innovations in diagnosis, innovations in treatment, various devices uh, that are incredibly expensive, incredibly cool, amazing, um, but where the bang for the buck is not always there. So talk about some of those, the variation across technologies and innovation, because we think of ourselves in the United States as the most innovative healthcare 
uh, provider in the world. And I think that's true, but it's not always worth it, which is hard for people to accept. But do I have that described correctly? Exactly. Yes. There, um, my co-author Amitabh Chandra and I tried to think about different types of technologies, and maybe I'll just sort of lay out the the way we kind of split things up here. It's very simple. But one set of technologies are things where there's they're no brainers. They're just obviously good. They save lives. They're marvelous. They're wonderful, and they're limited to a fairly narrow group of patients. So, for example, the antiretrovirals uh, as treatments for HIV. You know, if you didn't have HIV or weren't close to, to, to getting it, um, you would never take these drugs. So it was sort of a limited population who took it and, and, and the results were life-saving. And those we can all agree, even if they're expensive, for example, the treatments for hepatitis C that have come out recently that have gotten so much attention, yeah, they're expensive, but boy, do those treatments work. So those are great. The second category are things are treatments that are great for some people and not so great, or maybe we don't really know much about for the, for the larger group of people uh, who might be candidates. And I wanna come back to that because I think that's the most intriguing part of healthcare technology. And I think what worries me most with regard to future healthcare costs. And the third group are things where, are treatments where we really don't have good evidence that they're useful or not, but they're used anyway. And for example, there are a variety of approaches to treating prostate cancer, and some of them cost twice or three times as much as kind of the standard open prostatectomy, but with no evidence that they're any better than the alternative. Um, and I think those are, are things, again, that we can sort of look at and kind of wonder why we're paying so much money for those treatments. Um, some will argue for this third or latter category, yeah, well, you know, we haven't figured out how to use the technology yet, but if you give us a little more time, we can figure out really how to make this work. And that holds, for example, for proponents of, of what these huge machines called proton beam, uh, uh, that do proton beam therapy. But let's set that aside. I wanna go back to this category too, where this happens quite a lot where a randomized trial comes out that shows huge benefit for a very specific group of patients. There are patients that are chosen to not have complications who, who would be the ones who would be most likely to benefit. And the procedures are done by the very best doctors and the very best medical centers. And they find a positive benefit. And doctors read the New England Journal, they read JAMA, they say, hey, this thing works. And all of a sudden you see this tremendous growth, this diffusion of this new technology. It's quite uneven across areas of the country, by the way. Um, and, and there you start wondering, hmm, you know, how much benefit are we, are we really getting for that marginal patient? Yeah, that's the challenge because obviously um, the protein B manufacturer or the doctor who gets really good at it has a natural incentive to think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And we had we had an episode with Adam Sifu on this question of how do you um, uh, reliably know what you know about what works. And of course, one trial, one uh, study often is not adequate for figuring out. And you pointed out a couple of really interesting reasons for why that might not be true. The doctors doing it might be especially talented 
or the patients receiving it might be especially prone to find it uh, helpful. And of course, then it gets used more widely. Um, but ultimately, the question is going to be, and this is, um, I think, the biggest problem we have in American healthcare is, well, why, as, as I'm sure some listeners have been thinking, why would you ever use something that doesn't work? that costs three times as much? Or why would you ever use something that might not be any better that costs three times as much? And that gets at what's peculiar about how we adopt healthcare innovation as opposed to innovation in other industries. So uh, what do you think is going on there? Well, I, I, I think that's right. I think that that um, the FDA and uh, in particular Medicare, who often makes these decisions of whether to pay or not, um, they're not in the position legally of deciding whether something is worth certifying or, or, or qualifying to make uh, available for, uh, for, ins- for people to receive and have it covered under their insurance. Um, it, instead, there, the, the nature of the certification process, say, for example, to be able to bill Medicare for providing uh, this particular service, uh, th- that nature is whether the treatment is medically effective. Uh, and for example, proton beam therapy, it's as effective as other treatments, but they're not asked to actually compare which whether this one is any better. Um, sometimes there will be randomized trials where they don't compare the new drug against the next best drug, the the opportunity cost, if you'd like, right? But instead they compare it against the placebo and they show that it's effective against the placebo. And so it's the drug is certified for use. So I I don't think that that the regulatory um, structure in the United States is is set up to make these kinds of comparisons to say, yes, this is cost effective and this isn't. So that's crazy. I mean, I I try very hard to be um, even keeled on this program as the host. But right now I'm trying to fight off the urge to scream and say, are, are you crazy? Isn't that nuts? Why would <laughs> well, you do it that way? Is that bizarre? And so when we look at rising healthcare costs and you know, I look at the single factor I naturally am drawn to both as an economist and as an economist who likes the free market is that out-of-pocket Spending as proportion of total spending has slowly declined in the United States over the last 50 years, and that correlates with a nice increase in how much we spend <clears throat> as a nation. And I think there's a relationship there that's not just correlation but causation. We can debate how important it is, how big it is, but surely when you're spending other people's money, you don't spend it as carefully. You're likely to buy things that are not as valuable as, as you would if you were paying for it out of your own pocket. That I understand. But the idea then that you would say, okay, here's your menu of free stuff, and we're going to add some stuff to it that's really expensive because you don't care, because you don't pay for it, and the doctor doesn't care. So what kind of a crazy, nutso system is that? <laughs> um, I, I, I agree. Uh, it, the question is coming up with a, a, with a system that's less crazy and nutso. Um, I think it's possible, but I think there's a lot of debate. Uh, as to whether uh, any of the proposed reforms would would improve things or not, I think it's useful. It's really useful to to look at the at the, at, at Europe now. When people talk about European healthcare, 
it is not a homogeneous system. I mean, the Netherlands is way more like we are than than they are like England. England is kind of the classic national health service. They actually have a panel called it's called NICE. It stands for I can't remember what it stands for, but it's um, but there but they nice. actually. Yes, NICE. It's like National Institute for Comparative Effectiveness, uh-huh. uh, and uh, and they actually do the task that you were suggesting that we should do, which is they look at each treatment, and they and they use a cost effectiveness ratio of oh about thirty thousand pounds per life year, and. If the if the if the drug is priced above that, oftentimes the drug company will actually readjust the price so they come in under the line, so that they qualify. And if the treatment is not sufficiently cost effective, they will often say, "No, we're we're not going to provide this. We're not going to pay for this." And in the National Health Service, if if you don't if the NHS doesn't provide it, then you're probably not going to get it except perhaps through private uh, sources in, 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 in England. And it's tremendously controversial because some drug will come along that doesn't quite make that, that guideline or the, 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 the uh, hurdle. And all of a sudden, it's this problem where, well, you're kill, you know, you're how people, can you sure. let these people die? And of course, the answer to that is uh, because we're not going to let other people die because we're not going to overspend on health care and we're not going to lower the quality of life. But I certainly agree that it's cra- that's equally crazy to have a committee that formally decides who should live and who should die and under what circumstances. That's all. I, I get that. That's not a fun committee to be on. Uh, no. But it sure beats. No. It probably is better. Probably. It's not clear, but it's probably better than saying, well, if it's a little bit better, regardless of the cost, we'll have it. We'll pay for it. Yeah. Pile it on the plate. We're, e- we're hungry. Yeah, yeah, but it, it and 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 so sometimes what people will say is is look that the the U.S. government should only pay for things that are cost effective. If you want to pay for it yourself out of pocket, that's fine. Sure, help yourself. Uh, and that's another way to do it. If you want to pay for you know proton beam therapy, fine. You just it, it's sometimes called reference pricing, where where the where the insurance company or the government will pay for sort of. The thing which is least cost but is quite effective, and if you want to kind of wander off the path, then then you pay the differential between what the government was willing to pay for this low-cost treatment versus a higher-cost treatment. And that's certainly one way to go, although you would introduce something that in the United States is at, is still somewhat foreign, which is, especially in Medicare, which is rich people buying things that poor people can't afford. Which doesn't bother us so much when it's a Maserati, but when it's, um, say, anesthesia, it would. The question is, you know, how much is it like anesthesia and how much is it like a Maserati? And when healthcare, we tend to have an emotional reaction that's more like anesthesia every time. Uh, let me ask a question related to a particular, uh, let me give, me give you a tangible example. So I, uh, I had a, cor- I mentioned my shoulder. So I had a cortisone shot for my shoulder. And when my uh, doctor, put that shot into my shoulder, uh, she was watching the needle go in on a real-time imaging thing that let her see where that needle was relative to the bones and muscles. It was really extraordinary. Whereas in the old days, I guess they just, and I'm sure some places it still happens, they just have a pretty good idea where to put it and they put it and hope it's close. So that piece of technology, which let them look 
and see exactly where it was going, that's a beautiful thing. And it must cost a fortune. (laughs) And who decides whether that gets in that office? Does the doctor say, well, we're going to raise the cost of our cortisone shot treatments uh, because we have this technology and will Medicare or my healthcare plan pay for it? Who There are other gatekeepers beside Medicare, right? I'm not on Medicare. So I assume it's a question then of whether my healthcare uh, provider, my insurance provider decided that's that's a legitimate expense. But of course, no matter what, I've never asked. They never say, uh, do you want to just have this done by feel like we used to do it? It'll be cheaper. <laughs> they just, everybody just assumes, oh, give them the max, give them the luxury, give them the Maserati. Well, do you know what's what's happening there? Because same question comes up with a hospital. How many, how many MRIs should they have? Should they adopt the new improved PET scan? Whatever it is. I'm sure it gets better every year. Who's making those decisions? That that that's a, a an excellent question, and 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 I think as you might expect, the the answer is that the decisions are made, but not probably in a rational or thoughtful way necessarily. In in the case of your imaging uh, machine to make sure that you know the shot goes where it should, I'm like totally in favor of that. Um, I think, in fact, the questions should be asked about, you know, how often do they give shots? For example, sometimes for back pain. Uh, they'll give these uh, epidurals, like uh, women get at childbirth. Only they 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 do it to kind of relax your your back. So far, there's no evidence that this works, but you know it's not hard to get one. You've got somebody in. You're a doctor. You've got somebody in pain. They are really suffering, and they're they're saying, "Look, doc, you've got to do something for me." And sometimes, you know, maybe that you get some relief for a little while. Maybe it goes away, but. You know, the physician goes into the business in order to help their patients and not to, like, protect the budget. So I think those kinds of questions are hard. I'm perfectly willing to to pay for sort of the best, the, for very good technology, assuming it really does yield better outcomes, well, as, as the in cost. the case, I think, right. But I mean, in some billion, cases... It's a billion dollars? Well, if it's a billion dollars, yeah, no, 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 I I agree. But but this is a, you know, this is electronics. It's like once you buy one of these things, the marginal cost of using it is pretty low, and and you got to think that after a while, that you know, like like for uh, you know uh, ballpoint pens, that the price is going to come down and it's going to be just sort of a you know off the shelf thing. At least you hope that. Well, you'd think that, but that goes against the question we started with, which is the prices don't they don't come down. And the reason I think is obvious is because they come down everywhere else because people have a an incentive to spend their money carefully. Here they just make a better one that, that's more expensive. There's no incentive well, to make a cheaper yeah. one. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the problem. Uh, yeah, except at some point you can make them that are – that. no, that's right. But there is actually quite a bit of debate about like some of these 3D imaging for breast cancer um, uh, for mammography. And and now they're actually getting to be so accurate that there's a lot of concern that they're picking up too much, oh, that sure. they're picking up benign, little tiny uh, uh, abnormalities that that are not predictive at all of breast cancer, and they're identifying people my, as as being sick. And my my colleague Gil Welch has written extensively about what he calls overdiagnosis. That is, you walk in in the morning and you feel like you're a healthy, productive member of society, and you walk out of the doctor's office, you feel fine, but you've just been told you are you, you know you have this illness or this disease, 
which in fact may or may not lead to something more serious in, in the long term. We've done so, a, bunch of, a bunch of episodes on this problem. I mean, it's a huge, I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because I probably yeah. have prostate cancer right now. And yet here I am happily and healthfully, healthfully and only in my own mind moving along with my life. But that prostate cancer might not kill me for 50 years and something else will get me in the meanwhile. And I really don't That's want right. to spend money finding out that I have that inside me. In fact, virtually, I think every man who lives to be, if, if, if a man could live to be 100, he'd have prostate cancer. It's just often benign and often slow growing. And so it's not relevant. We don't like to know that necessarily, but uh, the problem is that if we diagnose it and then we feel we have to do something, it can often be worse than being in ignorance. Right. Once you get the PSA test, yeah, you, you, it, and, it, it, and if the PSA test is, is sufficiently high, then you're just going to worry about it all the time. There, the, Gil, Gil Welch has this very nice uh, 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 way of explaining screening for these kinds of diseases. He said, you know, we want to set up a fence to keep rabbits inside. And that's kind of the idea of like screening for disease so we can find that cancer and, and, and contain it and keep it within. But, but e either you, you have a tortoise, uh, in which case you don't need to build a gate anyway, because it's not going to do you, it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, or you have birds, in which case you build, you, you know, you put up the fence and the birds just fly off anyway. And so to the extent that you have diseases that, that, that are characteristic of, you know, either tortoises or birds, along with rabbits, then the screening for the disease is going to be limited in effectiveness, uh, which isn't, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. In many cases, of course, you should, of but, course. But, but, it's, but you, don't, you don't get the benefits that you might think you, you would from a, a widespread uh, screening program. Yeah, we don't give medical advice on this program, but when, um, when people tell me I have to get test A, whatever test A might be, and I say, I don't think so. Uh, they look at me like I'm crazy. Or the, the alternative I hear is, uh, you know, a friend says, this surgery saved my life. And, um, and I always say, <laughs> yeah. how do you know? To yeah, myself, what's the, I well, yeah, what's the counterfactual? <laughs> yeah, exactly, because you don't know. It just, but yeah. but there's, a, there's an emotional, psychological part to this, of course. Let me ask you about, uh, do you know anything about Lasix? There's this folklore among um, free market folks like myself that, that Lasix, the eye surgery, has fallen over time, probably because it's not covered by insurance and people are paying out of their own pocket and the incentives that normally produce good results with technology in other areas apply there, whereas they don't in other parts of the medical uh, area. Do you know anything about that? I, I, I can't speak with authority, but I have heard that there are places in uh, – in particular, uh, in, in in Canada, that just that's all they do, and they specialize in that, and they get very good outcomes. But I, I haven't kept up with the trends. Yeah, my understanding um, though is it's gotten cheaper over time and better and more reliable, uh, yeah. which is not true of anything else um, that the healthcare system, or very few things that the healthcare system touches. So, um, let's let's. No, I, but it's, but let me let me go go back to the example of Lasix because that's something where the diagnosis is clear, and the treatment is is well specified. Like there's not a lot of question about whether you should go ahead and do something about it. If the patient wants to, they're well equipped to decide. And so I I think that's kind of a special case. Um, when I 
when people ask me, well, you know, but isn't it true that health insurance has really contributed to healthcare cost growth? Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, you need to provide some funds in order for a provider, healthcare providers to do what they do. But then, you know, I look at pet healthcare. Right, that's another yeah. good example. And, 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 you know, Medicare Part P hasn't yet been implemented for pets. Any day now. Uh, any day, any day. Well, in, in the next February, administration. Exactly. Yeah. February, depends who it is, but it, it could be coming. And we will get all the cat people on board with yeah. Medicare Part P. <laughs> but but the, it's been remarkable how much growth there has been in, in healthcare spending on pets. And, um, and that, that's, that's why I often think of technology growth. The fact that when you bring your pet in, the doctor will say, well, you know, we can do a, we can put in, implement, implement a medical device into this, you know, pet, uh, into this dog. And you're in this funny position where it's like, if you say no, as an economist, you might say, well, you know, my dog's 12 years old. It's like, we've had a good life. And your kids are looking at you like you're Simon Legree. So it's, it's a tough one. Uh, and that's why I think (laughs) that's true true of everything because you're, you know, it's, it's like when, um, to take out the emotional part, which is perhaps not appropriate, but I think, I think it's still illuminating. You know, we go shopping for a car and my, and my sons want a Porsche, say, and I want a Honda (laughs) Accord. And they say, oh, dad, we really love the Porsche. It's going to be so cool. And I say, it's just not worth it. And there we say, well, that's, you know, that's life. Um, and, and yet, the Honda Accord today is such a better car than it was 25 years ago, 10 years ago. Uh, it's an amazingly great car, as is all, as are all of its competitors in the class. Because to be a competitor, they have to pretty much match the features and the reliability and the gadgets and the gizmos and the gas mileage, etc. So the real question is, when we say that, say, healthcare expenditure on pets is rising, sure, uh, we're a rich nation. I think despite the data, I think we're a richer nation very much across the board than we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I would expect that we'd probably want to make that decision to save um, Lassie, even though she's 14 uh, or 12, more often than we did in 1940 when we said, you know, take the dog out back and kill it. And that's great that we're more able and willing to do that because we have the resources to do it. The question is, does competition among vets help reduce the rise in that demand by introducing innovation and other cost-saving things? Now, one of the reasons it's going to get more expensive is that it's, it's a labor-intensive activity, and all labor-intensive activities have gotten more expensive. But if there are gadgets used to work with dogs and cats, I wonder if they have got – and that don't work on humans because that contaminates the – you know, there's a cross-effect there – do those get cheaper over time and, and easier? Maybe it's not even an answerable question. I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great question. I, and again, I, I I I'm not an expert in the pet healthcare industry, but but I'm 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 thinking it might be a good place to go into if you know I I do have tenure, so people can yeah. sort of laugh at me. But no, I think it's but I think it's, I think it, it, it's it's an alternative world where there's no such thing as health insurance, yeah. and to kind of tra- trace that out would be really interesting. I think it's understudied. Uh, but let's move to something that's that's heavily studied. And you've worked a lot on it, which is a topic that has gotten a lot of attention, which is variation in both price and usage of various uh, medical techniques uh, geographically. So. Uh, 
it's surprising, and give us an idea of what the range is, it's surprising how much variation there is, again, compared to, say, other markets where prices tend to be somewhat similar. Well, yeah, the, I, I should start out with, you know, the, the, the person who really got me interested in this topic and lots of people interested in, in this topic was a real pioneer, a guy named Jack Wenberg, who was driving around in Vermont in the 1960s. And he was worried that there were communities in Vermont that were being underserved because they didn't have access to, uh, to hospitals or to doctors. And so he started actually collecting all of this data from all of these towns in Vermont and, and found remarkable variation across uh, little towns. In fact, in the, in the community where he lived, this, the, the, divided by a street. So in one school district, none of the kids had their tonsils. And the, across the street in the other school district, you know, most of the kids had their tonsils and it was because the doctor in one school district believed in taking tonsils out and the doctor in the other school district thought that was kind of a dumb idea. So he, he, he compiled all of this data and he sent this, the paper to all of the major medical journals and they all rejected the paper. And he finally, one of his friends said, why don't you send it to, to, uh, to Science, which is the highest prestige journal uh, like, uh, in, in, in the business. And they took it and they published it in 1973. And it's been kind of, ever since then, uh, we've been sort of following up on, uh, on this article in Science. And, and, and more recently, uh, they're, they're, they've, uh, Zach Cooper and his associates um, have started looking not just at differences in utilization across regions, that is how many back surgeries per thousand or how many uh, doctor visits or, 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 or uh, admissions, uh, but has also looked at variation in prices in the under 65 population. And um, there is way more variation across regions than I, even I thought possible. Um, first of all, there's a, a lot of variation in the Medicare population. And remember that Medicare is, is a federal insurance program. So prices are pretty much fixed across regions. There, there's some adjustments for, for uh, you know, New York is more expensive than Oklahoma. Um, but what uh, Zach and his colleagues found was that there was just as much variation in utilization in the under 65 private insurance uh, programs, but there was a, even more price variation. That is prices in these small communities uh, that were actually doing pretty well with Medicare spending were, were astronomical compared to more competitive uh, uh, regions uh, that had uh, uh, lower prices. So, so I, my takeaway is like you, you, everywhere you look, you see variation. Now I should say that it's not just healthcare that, uh, you know, people in Philadelphia are more likely to consume Philadelphia cheesesteaks. People in California are going to eat salads. And in fact, I, I remember doing, looking at this map of like chicken consumption and it showed just as much variation across the country in chicken consumption. So, but not in I price, think, not in price. I guarantee but, I, I, I bet large well, sums yes, of money. Exactly. Not in price. Yeah. There is not that kind of variation in price. I think that people are beginning to realize that healthcare is 
often a natural monopoly. There is one dominant hospital in the area, as there is where I live, there's Dartmouth-Hitchcock Hospital. Um, and, and, and no you insurance- be, you, wouldn't be caught, you wouldn't be caught dead going anywhere else. Sorry, I couldn't help help myself there. (laughs) Absolutely, but it's also a long drive to go anyplace else. Uh, And and so so those hospitals, you know, not surprisingly exploit their natural monopoly because it's easier to do that than it is to actually like figure out how to cut costs. But to come back to my earlier example, I mean, if if I need an MRI for my shoulder Mm -hmm. and I call five MRIs within 10 miles, and there's a lot here, I'm in suburban Maryland and- for better or for worse, there, there are quite a few. Uh, one could call that a great thing. I'm not sure, but there are quite a few. So uh, I call around. They're not close to the same. They're all over the place in what they charge. And it's, it's obvious to me why and that it's a bad thing. And it's because what's the who's paying it? Nobody's paying attention. Well, that's not fair. I'm not paying attention for sure. Uh, my, the only person paying, the only entity paying attention is going to be my insurance company. Uh, they have some range, I assume, but they don't dictate the price uh, like Medicare. And yet the, the incentive for a provider of any service, whether it's back surgery or MRI or whatever it is, it's just not like any other market. There's no market for it. There's limited market forces working there. Oh, I, I agree. I think insurance companies, they're trying to figure this out. But they, they, they in other words... Some are trying to introduce this reference pricing that we talked about before, where where you would uh, the insurance company would sort of find a, a legitimate, you know, high quality provider that charges not very much, and say, "This is how much we'll reimburse you for your uh, colonoscopy. If you want to go someplace else, that's fine, but you have to pay for it." That kind of policy leads to very rapid response from the companies or from the hospitals providing colonoscopy. But I, but I want to give you, I'll give you a personal example of, of this, this issue about MRI pricing. Um, I was, uh, I got a phone call. I, I was scheduled for an MRI and I got a phone call from my insurance company and they said, you know, there's this other place over here, which is fairly close. And if you go there, you'll save on your copayment and you can save, you know, like a Maybe a hundred dollars, hundred and fifty dollars, and and um, and so I checked with my doctor, and this was a fairly involved, you know, MRI, and and the doctor said, well, first of all, that's you know that's not quite as good an MRI. Second of all, we don't get the results as quickly because inside the hospital you have uh, electronic records, and. And so the only risk is that you might have to come back and do it again. It's hard. And fun. so, which right, which is not much fun. Um, and uh, and and furthermore, the insurance company was only promising me a reduction in the copay. It was not a a, a highly um, incentivized program because they were still you know saving. They would get seventy percent of the gain, and I would only get you know or. 80% of the gain and I'd get 20% of the gain. Yeah. So, so it wasn't clear even then that they had sort of figured out that if they were really serious about getting people to go, that they would use a more high powered incentive. But I think that's where people are going now. That's where insurance companies are going uh, because that seems like an obvious one to do. I just think it's so bizarre. Um, yeah. it, it's just, um, and it's just 
business as usual. I mean, no one even thinks twice about it. That's just the way it is. Um, the idea that a your insurance company would make a suggestion to help you save a few bucks, even if in this case, maybe it wasn't worth it, but the idea that they would call you uh, and notify you about it is comical in a tragic comic kind of way. Um, well, well, it's a start. It's a start. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so, um, yeah. l- let's shift gears. I, I want to talk about something that's in the news recently, and I know you've written some on it, which is um, a recent study, uh, Angus Deaton and Ann Case, about rising mortality rates among, I think it was middle-aged white men. Uh, and that's shocking because mortality falls steadily for all groups year in, year out in the United States over the last 50 years, maybe longer. And it's one thing to say it's not rise, it's not falling as quickly for some groups, which, of course, it can't be by random variation. It's not going to fall at the same rate for every group. Uh, but that it's rising for one group is kind of shocking. And... Um, it's been speculated, I don't know how reliable this speculation is, is that uh, this is due to an increase in prescribed uh, opioids for uh, pain that have either been abused or misused. So what do we know about that? So that is a very uh, remarkable finding. Uh, recently, the last few days, a new result came out. Some preliminary data from the CDC suggests not just that mortality is rising for these white non-Hispanic kind of older middle-aged folks, uh, but that mortality is rising for the entire United States. Yeah, I in saw that. In 2015. Yeah. And, well, and, that's, and, that's in the aggregate, but is it is that, it rising for, which could be just because for that one group, the rise is large enough to offset the declines elsewhere. Well, the, the rise actually wasn't that big. Um, so, there, there was a small increase in in mortality, which and the increase itself could be explained by largely by uh, opioid deaths. The real puzzle is why didn't mortality drop for this group, for this older group, as rapidly as mortality in other groups? But the fact that the aggregates are going up, and this is in, in combination with the the elderly who have always been reliably living longer every year. Um, and of course, a lot of the mortality rate is driven by uh, older people because they're unfortunately they're the ones who are who are uh, who who are more likely to die. Um, that was a shocker to me uh, because you'd think that there would be certain subgroups of the population that are kind of doing worse. For example, again, whites in the 25 to 34 group are also particularly badly hit by this opioid epidemic. But to find that overall mortality rates are coming back up, that is a surprise. Now, to me, that suggests that we may be devoting our resources rather than, uh, uh, we're devoting our resources perhaps in the wrong place. that, well, you know, we, we know could, that's true, John, after what we've been talking about. That, <laughs> yeah, that, by that's, definition, that's a given. Right. But the question is, yes, we've overcome yeah. <laughs> that before. <laughs> right. But, but, but you know, that, that we're spending lots and lots of money for these new treatments. You know, personalized medicine is coming around the corner and all of these wonderful, you know, drugs that, you know, $100,000 drug regimens that, you know, extend lifespan by a median of, of six months. And we're kind of 
totally missing the boat on on all of these folks that are uh, having serious problems with opioids. And you know, the deaths are just a the tip of the iceberg. I, I think it is true that there are more and more people who are uh, on opioids and um, in our in our genuinely in pain. Um, and it is a, a, a it's not necessarily an addiction, but it is true that you that once people start taking opioids, um, that to go off of opioids is really, really difficult because in fact, if they were in pain initially, that kind of the, the dorsal horn is opened up and like sending these pain impulses more directly to the brain. And so that when you stop taking opioids, you're, you're in real trouble. Um, and so I think that is certainly contributing to it. And, and also just the, the, the uh, falling apart of, um, of jobs and and uh, and community structure, and and again, not just jobs of individuals, but also sort of all of the kind of public goods that used to be provided uh, by communities that had uh, vibrant factories and and uh, manufacturing. That all seems to be gone. The evidence seems to be that most of the mortality increases are coming in rural areas and and less in in cities, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. So let's try to go a little deeper into this. So- and give us a little more background. So opioids are painkillers, right? Yep. And what are, do you know the names of some of these that people are, might be taking that are leading to problems? I don't know what. Well, oxycodone is a, is a pretty popular one okay. uh, for people who become uh, addicted. Uh, there is a, a new kind of um, a, a, a newer drug called Suboxone, which is useful for sort of maintenance of drug addiction. So that's useful, for example, for getting people from heroin uh, off. Um, But then they are still on maintenance drugs. There's also methadone. Um, And I think a lot of the concern is people start with, with, say, uh, uh, Oxycontin or some kind of, you know, standard uh, Percocets, uh, uh, some sort of standard drug. And, you know, they're really expensive, especially if you don't have a prescription. If you buy them on the black market, they're very expensive. And so people uh, find that heroin is actually cheaper. Do we know, so though, they, do we know that what, I mean, how much of this is known in the, in the following sense? So obviously there's uh, there death certificates that'll give a reason for death. Is the reason that are given in these cases, has it been established that this particular group has a rising rate of death from drug overdose or is it drug interaction? What, do we know anything about that? So, they, it, uh, no, well, the death certificates do have, do make an effort to find uh, what the cause of death was. And so we do have measures. The, the general classification that case in Deaton is, is poison, poisoning, deaths by poison. Um, and that is rising very rapidly. Um, but there are other, other uh, problems as well that are kind of related to uh, drug abuse, which aren't quite so obvious. So you still may have cardiovascular reactions or um, car accidents or uh, Certainly cirrhosis of the liver is something that's been on the upswing as well from drinking. But are we, so, saying, are we saying here that people in rural communities 
depressed because they can't find work, which I find to be a strange argument in a time when the national unemployment rate's about 5%. I know I know that labor force participation is down, so in, employment is, is not great. But we're not like, it's not the Great Depression with unemployment of 25%. Yes, it's it's depressing to not have work. And yes, there are pockets of the country where it's much worse than that, than 5%, obviously. But it's hard to understand how that can create a national rise in the death rate of, of, a, of a very large part of the population. And I understand that, you know, if you're a rural coal miner and coal mine jobs are gone and you don't want to move, um, that it, life is hard and you might turn to overuse through black market purchases or are you getting some extra prescriptions from your friendly doctor? We don't really have a good idea what's going on here, do we? I think the, the, the one thing we can say with certainty is we don't have a good idea of what's going on. Um, We're guessing people, to some extent. And, and that's why I, I hesitate a little bit. Um, uh, Ellen Mira and I wrote, wrote a, a commentary on this on this on the on the, the Case Deaton paper where we did some speculation and uh, what, and one possibility is that is that there's just a sense of of futility that that uh, especially for white non Hispanics that their their parents did better uh, than than the grandparents than the great grandparents and all of a sudden they kind of hit the wall. And they're stuck with at best uh, jobs that pay you know nine ten dollars an hour, and there's no advancement up that that they may be working, but they're not working with kind of uh, in, in a way that, that allow them to sort of support their family. I don't want to become a pop sociologist here, uh, so but, I won't speculate to, any just further. To clarify, but just but. to clarify the mechanism, <laughs> then what? I mean, I find that. Possible, but I'm a little bit surprised that it could work at the national level for that size of a group. But but let's say that's possible. I don't really believe it, actually. But but I'll put my disbelief aside. Okay. Um, what do I do now? I'm I'm depressed. I'm, life is futile. I can't get a good raise. I'm not living as well as my parents. And so, what do I do? I take an overdose. So, is this a suicide story or is it no, an abuse no, 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 story? No, 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 no. It's not so much suicide, but it's that at some point, I numb myself. Uh, no, it's it's. Your goal, if if you have a, a dead end job with a jerky boss, uh, your goal is, uh, or one way out is uh, is social security disability insurance. Uh, that is, you know, you're working someplace, you you start having horrible back pain, which, by the way, is related a lot to stress. Um, you have uh, a mental illness issues. You qualify for SSDI. Uh, that allows you to go see the doctor. We've uh, found evidence of just remarkable rates, levels of use of, you know, maybe at least a quarter or, or in some areas far more than that of people who are on SSDI and are taking a lot of, of, of opioids. And there it's, it's, it becomes m more plausible uh, that uh, th these are uh, unhappy people who aren't looking after themselves and they can die of other things as well, but they're not kind of locked in, working hard. They don't show up on the unemployment statistics, but they're kind of there. And, uh, and so that's, that's a group that I really am concerned about. 
Is there any question? I just just quickly Google this. These are uh, white non-Hispanic males, forty-five to fifty-four, mm-hmm. in the prime of their working productivity career, et cetera, that typically have shown it's actually peak earnings. And again, I, I understand the peak might not be as high as it once was, but generally those people in that age group experience rising wages up till then at least start to decline and maybe after the after that. But just to clarify, are they then, when, when a death is categorized as death by poisoning, are the, is it that they took too much or they just died from the side effects? They're just trying to figure out what the basic phenomenon is here. So, so if, if, if it's death by poisoning, it means that they overdosed. Um, so they, you know, they'll have a, you know, they'll, they'll have, you know, 30 days or some supply of opioids. And um, often what will happen is that it'll be mixed. So they maybe, you know, a friend of theirs shares some Suboxone with them and, uh, and they take something else and maybe they have a few drinks. And, and before you know it, the sort of interactive effects can really, uh, it can be very, very dangerous. And it's not the kind of thing you realize until it's too late. And is there a, a phenomenon of the drugs uh, that you need a larger dose to have the same pain impact? People- that, that's true for like Percocets, yeah. Yeah, when you and uh, that, that there is an increasing, that people become opioid resistant. And in fact, hospitals are be, are very much aware of that. When patients come in and and they're they're in pain, they kind of sometimes kind of ask, "Well, <laughs> you know, have you been taking opioids before?" Because you know the difference. They might give you ten milligram pills versus uh, if you haven't taken opioids before, but they might give you sixty milligram pills if you have. So yeah, you do become more resistant, and of course, that's a rising price for maintaining your opioid addiction. Uh, and and that is what that's where the problem comes. The, the, you know, these kids in rural towns can't afford to buy the Percocets on the black market, and so they turn to to crime, or they turn to heroin, or they do both. Well, it's a very depressing story. I wonder what. Um, oh, the other thing I wonder about is I wonder if these data are accurate. But that's always a question. You know, sometimes when I see a trend reversing like this, I just wonder if they change the way that they define death by poisoning or but i assume that's not the issue no i don't think because these are because this is total deaths in other words they can break it down but most of the puzzle was not so much that deaths by poisoning were rising but that other groups you know like cardiovascular disease kind of stopped falling as much for this group uh compared to say african americans or hispanics or uh, people in other uh, countries. That's fascinating in a tragic, tragic way. Um, I guess uh, it's an issue I'm sure we'll we'll come back to as scholars and as uh, econ talk because it's just it's so unusual. Yeah. Um, let's let's talk about digital medicine. We've had uh, Eric Topol on the program before talking about all the changes that are coming, and he's a big proponent of something we talked about before, which is owning your own data uh, and being in charge of your own data, having control of your data and, and your, and I think of your, eventually of your treatment, which digitization and a lot of the applications that are coming or at least talked about have the promise of doing. What do you think the potential of that is and what regulatory uh, issues do you think are going to have to be resolved or pushed aside a la Uber before some of these um, technologies can really have an impact? 
Um, I, well, I think in terms of ownership of your own data, I think that seems like a no-brainer. It's like, yeah, you should, <laughs> it's your body. <laughs> you should have access to your own data. In fact, if you want to analyze it, that's great. Um, I think that um, uh, this idea of of owning your your you know getting your DNA sequence done, I think that's going to be that's getting cheaper and cheaper, and and people may want to do that. Uh, I'm not sure they're going to learn that much from their DNA unless they have sort of very specific genetic markers, which would cause them to change, you know, to get uh, certain treatments. I, I, my impression of, of the DNA revolution is that it's been much less of a payoff for medical purposes than people thought. And um, I think in large part because uh, you know, the DNA may be the template, but what's really important for health is what proteins are are generated by by those DNA, and uh, and even identical twins produce very different proteins. This so-called epigenetics uh, uh, field, uh, and and I think that's where the science is going. But we're we're not very far along that uh, along that uh, path yet. Do you think um, this digital revolution is being oversold in terms of what its potential is for being, say, doctor-free, that I could just put my iPhone next to my uh, my uh, body somewhere and it'll send a message to the cloud that I've got such and such a thing and it'll be diagnosed by artificial intelligence and the drug will be dispensed by my 3D uh, printer and all that. Do you think that's a real vision that could happen? Um, yes, I think it could happen. I think, uh, uh, but most humans still want to talk to a human about, uh, the different options and what it means and what it means for their life. Um, I don't discount the possibility that in 20 or 30 years, we develop enough artificial intelligence that we can put doctors out of business. But if that's the case, then we'll be the economists will be out of business too, because <laughs> as, as we know, all we need is a parrot to say supply and demand, and we're, we're, we've basically covered most of our profession. So, um, so I, 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 I do think that that's a possibility. But um, I think if I hear the word, the two words, big data, uh, <laughs> anymore, I will like uh, throw up on my shoes. It's, it, 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 but this is often the case. A new technology comes along. And everybody becomes enamored of it. And over time, they gradually see, well, you know, it does provide some value, but maybe it's not the value we thought it would be. Why, why, is big, why are you tired of hearing about big data? Isn't, gonna, well, because, isn't it going to be amazing when all our healthcare records are up in the cloud and we can find out what works and what doesn't work? Treatment's going to get better. Medicine's going to get customized. Blah, 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 blah. You think that's just time? <laughs> yeah, just blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, obviously there are some, some value, but I mean, I, I've, you know, I've done a, some of this analysis, you know, using we, one of the wonderful things about Dartmouth is that we have uh, access to terabytes and terabytes of Medicare claims data. And so if we, we can put the computer to work to f- sort of find out interesting associations between, um, you know, for example, interaction of drugs yeah. leading to worse outcomes. Sure. And, and so what we've often fi- found is, is, is that, well, you know, if somebody's taking this drug, uh, you know, and that drug, that they're more likely to, to uh, you know, uh, have, a, have a, 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 a bone fracture. But, you know, there's a reason what... W- 
when you actually start looking at the data and talking to our expert clinicians, they say, well, yeah, usually somebody who's feral and elderly will be prescribed this drug and that drug. Um, (laughs) And so uh, it's it's not causal. It's just like we're just finding that, yeah, that people who have these particular problems will be prescribed the two drugs. And they also happen to get, you know, and it's because they're, they're likely to fall that they're prescribed these two drugs. So that said, I mean, there has, we have had some pretty interesting opportunities to find relationships that people didn't expect uh, in, in the data, but it's still uh, very much an art. I'm just going to mention that for my shoulder, I went and got physical therapy and was discouraged by the progress that was being made and stopped. And uh, my shoulder's gotten a lot better since then. So if I had continued, I would have said, what a great physical therapist I have. <laughs> but now I've, yeah. learned, I've, now I've learned that the key for shoulder pain is to get physical therapy and then stop. The key question is, how, when do you stop? <laughs> mm. uh, it's, uh, causation's tricky, uh, obviously. It's, it's ra- randomized trials for all of their faults are very good at answering questions like that. Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're almost out of time, or we are out of time. So let's close with the following. I'm going to give you an, a really unpleasant question, which is if you were a healthcare czar, uh, what would you do? See, if I were healthcare czar, I'd just dismantle most of the things that we've tried to mantle to make things better that I feel have struggled to make things better. And I'd let a thousand flowers bloom, and I'd let private charity and civil society take care of people who couldn't afford the healthcare treatments that are going to be a lot cheaper when we're not artificially pushing up demand and causing prices to rise. So I have a nirvana in my mind. What's yours? Well, I'd, I'd start with Medicare for pets, but uh, I, I think that won't go far. But no, but seriously, um, I would start with something a little bit less ambitious, but I think that would yield tremendous benefit, and that is a, a central processing institution for all insurance claims. So think of the, the Federal Reserve is the central institution that processes checks. When you write a check, they, it goes through the Federal Reserves and the banks get credited with the, with the money. That the only way you can, that insurance companies can reimburse you for a fee is if you fill out a common form. That would yield two benefits. First, it would save billions and billions of dollars in administrative costs. Um, And second is that it would provide instant monitoring and and, and, and a a picture of both regional variations and where, where is spending going and are we ramping up too quickly on this treatment or that treatment. I think that would that would be a no-brainer in the sense that everybody should be in favor of it and that it would save money and improve healthcare. My guest today has been Jonathan Skinner. John, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.